I want to begin as we're kind of passing out Bibles and getting communion cups, that kind of thing. I just want to begin by wishing our mothers a happy Mother's Day, Mom. But I need you to know there is no special sermon for you this morning. And uh, for those disappointed or upset by that, I'd like to, to direct you to the Sixth Commandment, You Shall Not Murder. <laughs> You know, it's, it's funny, I've been doing ministry for a while now, and um, it didn't even strike me until we started teaching through the Bible here at the bridge, and trying literally to stick to that pattern of just going chapter by chapter and verse by verse. It struck me how many times in church our, our study revolves around the holiday calendar rather than the Word of God. Then we go from holiday to holiday to holiday, and as a pastor I know because I've, I did it for years. No Mother's Day is coming up. We've got to talk about moms. No Father's Day is coming up. Ah, they don't care. Well, Christmas is coming up. <laughs> and, and we just, we kind of get stuck to the, the holiday calendar. Even celebrating holidays. And it's fine to celebrate the holidays, but even giving message time to holidays that aren't even ordained by God. Now, God loves our mothers. And God has blessed us in that way. But God wants us in His Word, and that's where we're going to continue to be. So let's pray, and we'll get into it this morning. Father in Heaven, we do thank You, Lord, for this place we can meet and open Your Word and dive in and learn. We thank You, Lord, for times of worship. As we thank You on Wednesday night, we thank You again this morning for the birds who are singing with us. And uh, what a pleasure, what a joy it is, Father. We don't have to uh, run that through the synthesizer. It's actually real. God, your word is, is so powerful, so overwhelming, that we are drawn to it. And we find, Lord, week to week that we just need to be back in it and, and to see what, what you've called us to, what you have for us. It amazes me, Father. It never gets old. It never gets boring. It's never dull. It's always life-changing and heart-touching. And we pray for this again this morning, Holy Spirit, that you will do the task that, one of the, the many tasks that you have in this world. It is clear that you will bring to remembrance all the things which Jesus has taught. That you will teach us that when we need a word, you provide it. I pray that you would provide my words this morning, Lord. And help us to understand you better. And to attempt, though we are saved by grace, to walk more closely with you. And to live lives that are pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's what the Ten Commandments is about. It's about learning to live lives that are more pleasing to the Lord. Again, it is not about saving yourself. It's not about if I keep these Ten Commands perfectly, then I will secure for myself a place in heaven. Because you know it's not going to happen. It doesn't happen. On our best days, we stand so often in violation of these commands. We are not looking at them as ways of lifting ourselves up to heights of righteousness. We're looking at them as ways of seeing how we can behave, how we can live, how we can think, and how we can feel that pleases the Lord. And then we strive to do these things. We strive to follow them. We keep getting drawn back to them. 
And what's interesting is the more we follow the commands of the Lord, the further apart our mistakes and failures tend to be. Yet the further away we draw from the Lord and His Word, the, the closer together our mistakes and failures tend to be. Exodus chapter 20 gives us the Ten Commandments. We've covered five and a half of them. Six, but we're going to stay on number six again this morning. Again, because it's Mother's Day, I'm not speaking directly to moms. We just want to make sure that this command is very clear. Would you repeat after me the, the commands we've done so far? Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. In Exodus chapter 20 verse 13, you shall not murder. And so we say, <laughs> this is a good one, you shall not murder, because it, you know, it's, it's pretty far from the life that I've been living. I've wanted to kill a few times, but I haven't killed, so I'm good. I'm alright here. It's a two-word command. You may recall from last week, we talked about a few things with it, about this last week. We actually talked about what murder is not. We talked about capital punishment, manslaughter. We talked about justified war. Using scripture, looking at the Bible to see how God feels about these things as not being classified as murder. The command is no killing. Lo ratzak. No killing. We looked at these misconceptions and I don't know how you felt about it, honestly. Um, people may have left and may have left upset. People feel very strongly about things like capital punishment and war especially. And though I know there were several of you who felt like it was, it was good, it was solid, it was biblical, there may have been others who walked out going, I just, I don't, I just can't agree with that. And I pondered this a bit this week and thought, and was reminded again that it's not my job to tickle your ears or to make you feel good. Though that happens, though God's word does reach in and soothe us and heal us and comfort us in ways we cannot even imagine. It's still not my job. My job is to give you his word and let the chips fall where they may. And you deal with it and struggle with it as I have to deal with it and struggle with it. We all do. But it's his word, not mine. I feel at times a bit like Peter after Jesus had laid down some tough, tough teaching. He just said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And people were disgusted by this. They, they were thinking, is this, this Messiah now teaching cannibalism? What is he talking about? Eating his flesh? It's disgusting. This hard teaching is too much to take. And people began to leave. John chapter 6 tells us that story. People actually began to make a decision. Oh, I'm not going to follow this guy anymore. I can't listen to his teachings. Too hard. And in verse 66 of John chapter 6... As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Interesting to me that that is chapter 6, verse 66. 666, which the Bible tells us is the number of a man. A number that never reaches perfection, that never gets to the place that God has drawn us to, or wants to draw us to. And the very verse is, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Well, Jesus said to the twelve in verse 67, You do not want to go away also, do you? He actually says the door's still open. Do you want to go too? 
And Peter turns around, and I love these words. He says, Lord, this is, these are the words, by the way, of a man in desperation. Lord, to whom shall we go? Where else are we going to go? Who else is going to lead us? Who else is going to give us life? Lord, to whom shall we go? And then he says, you have the words of eternal life. You have the words of life. So again, let the chips fall where they may. We have in the Bible the words of life. And of course, life is at issue with the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Now I want you to flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 where we're going to spend our time this morning. Exodus 20 verse 13 gives us the command, no murder. But to understand the command, we're going to go over to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Flip over there. Last week we talked briefly about a couple of men and a chimney. You remember that? Two men cleaning out a chimney. They fall in. Head first. First one goes down. He picks up all kinds of soot along the way. And when he gets down to the bottom, he's just covered head to toe with soot. The second guy follows the first and somehow... Because the first one, I guess, wipes it all off on the way down. He doesn't get so much on his face. His face is pretty clean. And if they look at each other, man number one with the soot on his face looks at man number two without the soot on his face and says, Oh, my face must be clean. And the second guy looks at the first guy with the soot on his face and says, Oh, my face must be dirty. And they're both wrong. And so when we come to a command like the six, no murder, we have to ask the question, who really has the soot on his face? I told you at the very end of the message last week, we'd answer that question this week. Who really does have the dirt under his fingernails, the blood on his hands? Who does this command really apply to? I'm no killer, right? My hands are clean, my face is clean. What does this mean? For me today. Well, again, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And Chuck Missler is fond of saying that what is in the Old Testament concealed is often in the New Testament revealed. And so we have a one sentence command here in Exodus, but come into Matthew and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to him explain these things to us. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But... Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hear that verse from the ears of a local Jew. And by the way, as Jesus taught, he was on the mountain. This is the Sermon on the Mount, so it's likely that birds were interrupting him too. So listen to the words from the ears of a Jewish person sitting there listening. Jesus says again, verse 20, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Jews did something that people often do today that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They elevated their religious leaders. They looked at the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the rabbis, and they said, these guys have it. 
I'll never really be like those guys. I'm just going to kind of scurry along and hope that I can just get close enough, just keep enough of the commands, just follow God close enough that I can get in. But I will never be like one of those guys. Those of you who know me well understand how easy it is to be better than me. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. Got an amen on that one. Those of you who know the elders of this church understand that they are just guys like you struggling along, trying to follow the Lord, praying, hoping... And trusting, we are in the same boat, folks. And yet, when people would hear this, they'd think, okay, wait, the Pharisees, the scribes, these guys are perfect. They wear the perfect clothes, they're always at the temple, they pray all the time. I've heard them. I heard the one guy on the street corner saying, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this poor beggar over here. I mean, these guys are the pinnacle of faith, right? Right? And Jesus says, okay. Unless your righteousness is greater than theirs, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So you're telling me, the common man, that my righteousness has to get better, has to exceed theirs if I want to get in? Yes! And listen to me, hear this. Jesus does not lower the bar, he raises it. When the New Testament comes along, he doesn't just abolish all the old laws and say, see, that's not important anymore, just forget it. We'll just cruise along in grace. He raises the bar. The standard is higher than we ever thought possible. The standard's higher. And God just told the children of Israel, do not murder. Jesus takes it much, much further and says in verse 21 of Matthew 5, You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. And the Pharisaical mind would say, yeah, good, I got it covered because I haven't murdered. The legalist would say, have I or have I not acted against this command? my behavior is clean, then I, then I am clean. Correct? In fact, in studying for this message, I heard some excellent teaching on four aspects of murder. I was listening to Alistair Begg talk about this on some CDs that I have, and, and he was saying, he talked about four areas of murder, and what this commandment talks about, homicide. He talked about suicide. He talked about infanticide or abortion. And he talked about euthanasia, which he says are all ways of denying God the authority over life. And they are. But Jesus goes deeper than that. He goes further than that. It's not just about the action of the hands with Jesus. It's about the attitude of the heart. Listen. Verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The brakes go on and I say, what? What? I'm okay with the murder thing, but you're now saying that this command means that if I'm even angry, then I'm stepping into that area of guilt? Absolutely. Because God is not concerned with the action of the hands. He's concerned with the attitude of the heart. Because the heart always precedes the hands in our behavior. It always starts here. What we do, how we act, how we behave in physical action comes from right here. It evolves out of the heart. I'm going to give you four words today on which to hinge the study of the Sixth Commandment, no murder. And the first one is premeditation. Premeditation. But wait a minute. You might say, well, our court system, don't we take premeditation into account? And, and that it's not actually murder. I mean, premeditated murder is, is first-degree murder, but we have different degrees. Premeditated, first degree, but if it wasn't premeditated, if it's a crime of passion, well, then maybe it's not quite as bad. It's a lesser sentence. Gang, listen. All murder is premeditated murder. 
All of it. Even the phrase crime of passion indicates where the crime comes from. The passion of the heart. All murder is premeditated. It grows out of how we think, what we feel, where our hearts are at. Premeditation. Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who is even angry with a brother is guilty already. And I bet if we did a survey in the prison system of everyone who's ever murdered somebody and asked them, were you angry with them prior to the murder, the answer would probably be yes. There's one other reason why someone would choose to to murder, and and we'll get to that in a minute. But premeditation. Interesting word choice here that Jesus uses. He says, I say that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The word angry here is not... Kulao. Kulao is another word for angry in the New Testament, in the Greek. Kulao means irritable. It's where we get the word choleric. And it's short-temperedness that comes with a lack of sleep. I was kulao all day yesterday. I was just really tired. But that's not the word Jesus uses here. It's also not the word thumos. Thumos is where we get our word thermos. It means hot. Something. Be careful, contents are hot. Open it up, pour it out, and you will get burned. It means that it's, it's very hot, dangerous. It indicates a rush to emotions. But that's not the word Jesus uses here. The word Jesus uses for angry is orgizomai. What are these great words? Thumas, kalao, orgizomai. Orgizomai means vengeance, wrath, or literally smoldering indignation. It's that seething under the surface. I say to you, anyone who has that seething, smoldering indignation has already committed murder. We're talking about a slow burn, pent-up, seething anger. It reminds me when I was a youth pastor in California, we would go to, to Newport Beach quite a bit. And we'd be out on the beach hanging out. And one of the dangers we had to warn, warn the students all the time was the fire pits. If you lived in California and you knew about this, oftentimes people would take coal down to the beach, they would light a fire, they'd have their barbecues in the evening, and then they would just cover up the coal with sand. But the coal sat under the sand and it would seethe. And it would broil. And it would not cool off when covered by the sand. And so a a child might wander across the sand, jump up on the edge of the fire pit and step inside, not realizing that what's underneath there is burning hot coal. Coal could sit there and see it for two or three days. Protected under the sand like that. That's the kind of anger we're talking about. Murder, my friends, is not just plunging the knife. It's not just pulling the trigger. It is the premeditation of the heart. It's not the behavior. It's the brooding. It's what's going on inside that leads up to that behavior. And you might say, I have that. I've had that brooding. I've had that anger. I have that kind of anger towards someone right now in my life. But Rick, you have no idea. You do not understand what they did to me. You don't get it. Every time I think of this person, my heart gets angry. Or gets on my. Because you don't understand. What they did was so vile, so bad, so awful. It reminds me of a parable Jesus told, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And the parable is this. He said there were two guys in this parable. First guy owed some money to a king. In fact, he owed 10,000 talents. That would be roughly $10 million. He was in debt up to his eyeballs and, and worse. $10 million you owe to this king. And he comes before the king and the king says, pay the debt. And he says, there's no way. And he falls at the mercy of the court. 
please let me off the hook. I can't pay. There's no way I can pay this back. And so the king says, all right, I'll tell you what. I'm going to grant you mercy. I'm going to wipe your debt clean. You're free to go. And the same guy then goes out and finds another guy who owes him, and the amount was 100 denarii, roughly $2,000. And he says, pay up! I need that money now. See, that's kind of what we do. As soon as we realize we have a debt, we go finding money everywhere we can. <laughs> who owes me? Because I've got to pay this. And that's what this man's doing. I've got to get paid off. I've got to get my life back in order. Pay me the money. And 2000 bucks is still 2000 bucks. It still matters. It's still an amount. It's still important. But the guy says, I don't have it. So he throws him into prison. And the king finds out about this and grabs the first guy and says, After all I've done for you, $10 million in credit and you're after $2,000 and send a guy to prison and he sends him to prison and here's the point whatever has been done to me I have done worse to God let me say that again and there's not a person this doesn't apply to whatever has been done to me I have done worse to God and I said, Rick, I've been abused. Really? Have you been flogged? I've been slandered. Really? By a criminal next to you on the cross? But I've been molested. Have you been hung up naked on a cross before all the world to see? Well, I've carried the weight of someone's sin against me. Have you carried the weight of the sins of the world? Everything, whatever has been done to me, I have done worse to God. And can we, at the foot of the cross, honestly claim the right to hold someone in smoldering contempt when the Lord has freed us of an eternal debt? See, that's what God's saying. That regardless of what's been done to you, think of what you have been freed from. Think of what I have done for you. And if you struggle with this, if you have some of that smoldering or deeds of my anger in your heart this morning, let me encourage you to let the Lord be the Lord. Because he also says in Romans 12, 19, Never take your own revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and he will. And every ounce of justice will be meted out, everything will be made right by the Lord. By the Lord. So murder is premeditation. It's a matter of the heart, not the hands. Second word. Second word. Devaluation. Devaluation. Look at verse 22 again. I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. We're taking it up a notch. For inherent in the very concept of murder is the belief that the victim isn't worth the life they're living. That's another reason why people will commit murder, by the way. Crimes of passion are one, anger, and that seething anger that we talked about, premeditation. But people also will murder when they consider the life of the person they're murdering to be worthless. So that's someone else that you can talk to in, in a prison. Why did you murder this, murder this person? I didn't even know this person. I just wanted to take out a life. Devaluation. This life was not worth the life they were living. Oftentimes a murderer will kill because they don't think their own life is worth the living either. And yet the one thing in creation which holds highest value among all created things is what? It's man. The greatest value of all that God created. Listen to this as I read this to you. Psalm 8. 
Psalm 8, David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And then he says the following. This still should mind-boggle all of us. When I consider your heavens, wow, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Man, the value of man is incredible. It's it's phenomenal. It is the highest value that God places on anything that He has made. Man. But listen. Anything we do which devalues God's greatest creative act is tantamount, Jesus says, to murder. When I say to someone, you're good for nothing, I'm saying that God created something useless in humanity. When I say to someone, you're a fool, I am in essence saying God created something foolish. And in our culture, put-downs are so common, so much a part of how we hang out and how we interact with each other. Hey, jerk, how you doing? Great, idiot. And we just do this, and we're so natural and so comfortable with it, it almost seems ridiculous for Jesus to say, you, if you say to your brother you're good for nothing, you're guilty, or whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Are you kidding? It reminds me of the little girl who's riding in the car with her mom and dad. And and she says, Mom, I I have to understand, why is it that every time Dad drives, all the idiots are out driving? (laughs) Where do they come from? Dang, in a very real way, even something as innocuous as this, driving along, being cut off by someone and going, jerk, idiot, moron. Moron's my favorite word. The kids probably hear me say that. What a moron. Hey, I'm driving here too, dork. You know, we use all these phrases. We don't even think about it. Devaluation. Devaluation. Every time I do it, I'm devaluing another human life. I'm saying, that guy's an idiot. God, you made an idiot. And God's going, well, I'm looking at an idiot right now. (laughs) Something as innocuous as this devalues a life created by the Lord. But we take it further. She's an idiot. He's a clueless wonder. She's just so stupid. Good for nothing. Fools. And all the while, what the Lord is truly saying is, well, I don't think so. I don't think that person is stupid. I was pretty proud of that one when she was born. This one, when I created I was so excited and you're calling it dumb? That one is amazing to me and yet these people are looking at her and saying, she's a weirdo, she's a misfit, she doesn't count. God looks at every one of us as precious, valuable. Which is why this matters to Jesus. If you call that which God created, this precious, wonderful, valuable person, a fool, man, you're in danger of going to hell. It's the heart, again, it's murder. When I do this. By the way, this is the real danger of the myth of evolution. If I could just take a side note for a moment. 
You may have read in the paper this week that the debate is beginning to rage yet again. It's coming up in the news about intelligent design versus evolutionism. There are people who right now, Christians mostly, who are saying, hey look, we need to teach both. If you want to teach evolution, fine. Teach it as a theory. But we also need to teach intelligent design. Now the evolutionists are saying, oh, okay, that's a buzz phrase, intelligent design. All you're doing is trying to come up with something that will make people accept it. All you're really trying to teach is creationism. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You, you, you nailed it right on, the, right on the tip of the head there. Evolutionism, creationism, it's interesting to me, this, this thing is hitting the courts again. They're fighting over it. And what's happening now is the evolutionists are saying, you better not dare teach creationism in the public school. And it was just 80 years ago at the Scopes trial of 1925 that a high school teacher was convicted for teaching evolution, which then was against the law. We have really flipped the table on this one. You teach creationism today, you're busted. And so this goes around the courts. And what has this got to do with murder? Gang, it has everything to do with murder because evolution is devaluation. Evolution devalues human life and human existence. Now you might say, well, doesn't evolution teach that we're getting better? My friends, that is a lie from the pit and we all know it. We know we're not getting better. We know that mankind is not evolving into a higher species. If so, why is there still murder? If so, why is there so much sin and wickedness and evil and darkness and war in the world if we're getting better? The truth is, we're not getting better. And what evolution really teaches is that my past is goo. And my present is the best I can do with it. And my future is anybody's best guess. Hopeless. It's empty. It's devaluating. And when my past is nothing but monkeys, and when my present is nothing but a biological mass just doing my best, and when my future is ultimately nothing but emptiness, no life after this short stint here, our intrinsic value can only be based on one thing. Now hear me on this. If evolution is true, then my value as a human being is based on one thing and one thing alone. What I can do. That's it. It's obviously not based on where I came from or where I'm going. It's based on right now what I can accomplish. So what happens when we fail? What happens when I try and I blow it? What happens when I am an idiot? What happens when I can't pull it off in this life? When I cannot perform and raise myself to the level of other humans who may perform better than me? I am devalued. I start to think I'm worthless. That my life is not worth the living. But I bear, my friends, the mark of a creator. I have a past that comes from the fingers of God weaving me together in my mother's womb. I was chosen by Him to exist. Carry that thought for a moment. You're here because God called you into existence. Value. 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 My value is not based on my ability to achieve. My value is based in Him. Genesis 1.27 God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. There is not a person among us. There is not a person walking the face of the earth that doesn't have intrinsic God-given value. But when we look at someone and we cut them down, we rip on them, we tear them apart, or we call them less than valuable, we are committing murder. 
For we are his workmanship, Paul wrote, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. The word workmanship is koyema. It's where we get our word poems. We are God's poems, each of us written by his hand. And so the next time someone cuts you down, or maybe even put yourself down, remember this, in the heart of God you have immeasurable value. You have amazing words. And nothing anyone can say or do can remove that from you. And here's an interesting thought. Even Cain had that value. The first murderer, we read it last week in Genesis 4.15, after having failed miserably by the work of his hands, and actually murdering his brother, taking a life, God still put a mark on him to protect him against being murdered. So valuable is human life to the Lord. Life is precious to him. Premeditation is murder. Devaluation is murder. Let me give you one more. Denigration. Denigration. A consequence of murder as Jesus defines it. Denigration. But it may not be what you think. Look again. Jesus says, Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty. Everyone who says good for nothing shall be guilty. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Why is this so important? What is the big deal here, Jesus? Denigration. Listen, if human life bears the image of God, and if I call human life foolish or worthless or stupid, am I not denigrating the very one in whose image we have been made? When I cut people down, I may devalue their life, but I am also denigrating the name of God. I am casting shame on the image of God because I'm made in His image. And so when I tear into someone, I am tearing into not only the creation of God, but the reputation of God and the very name of God. Isn't it interesting in Psalm 8, the psalm that declares how wonderful man is and how valuable man is to the Lord, begins and ends with, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Do you know what God is doing here? It took me a while to understand this. In fact, it partially took the men's group on Tuesday night a few weeks back to straighten me out on this. Listen closely, it's amazing. God staked his reputation on man. God tied his glory to man. To man. And when we devalue human life, we denigrate the image of God himself, which is another way of violating the third commandment as well. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. And I've got to ask, is anybody guilty of this? Yes. Devaluing another life. Seeing another life as less than worth. Or less than worthy. But when I value human life, when, whether another person's or my own, or that of an unborn child, or that of an elderly person, listen to this. i, I got to share this. Mom, forgive me. i just got to share this. A little conversation my mother-in-law and I had this last week that struck me, especially in context of what we're talking about. She said, you don't understand what it's like to be retired or to be older or to be elderly in any sense of the word. You're not elderly anyway. No, you're not. Trust me. I can't keep up with her. But she said, you don't really understand until you're there the way people talk to you. That's what you're talking about. People talk as if you're not there. Or they talk around you. Or they talk over you, but they don't talk to you. 
And she said, for the first time in my life, I'm in this place where that happens sometimes. At the Home Depot, and someone's just talking over me. It's like, hey, I'm here. Devaluation. Denigration. Taking that which God has made that's beautiful and perfect and wonderful and valuable and making it less. But when we value life, and here's the point, when we value life, we glorify God. When we love life, when we live life to the full, we glorify God, which is why John Eldridge, in his book, Waking the Dead, quotes Arrhenius and says the following, The glory of God is man fully alive. I didn't get that at first. I thought, no, no, the glory of God is not based on man. It has nothing to do with man. Wrong. The glory of God is now tied to man. The moment he created and elevated man to a place of value as he did, he says, now my glory is tied to you. And people will see me in the way you behave, in the things you do, in that which comes out of your mouth. The glory of God is man fully alive. Jesus said, John 10.10, the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 12.49, the Father himself, Jesus said, who sent me, has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know his commandment is, listen, eternal life. John 14.6 Jesus even went so far as to say I am the life I am the life He valued your life He placed such a high measure of worth On your life and mine That he even placed it Above his own John 15.13 Greater love has no one than this Then he laid down his life for his friends And you are my friends If you do what I command you Friends of Jesus And that's where I come to grips with the sanctity and the value of life in its truest sense is when I become connected to Jesus. Then I begin to be able to live life, to understand life, and to value life. No murder. Low, not side. And Jesus attaches that command not just to the hands. He attaches it to the heart. It's not about just what you're doing. It's about what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're saying. Gang, it begins right here. Last week again, we looked at some misconceptions of murder. And today, according to Jesus, we've seen what murder truly is. It's a heart issue, a heart matter. But I want to ask you one last question this morning to consider. And that is, what is the opposite of murder? What is the opposite of murder? You might jump to the conclusion and say life. Well, I don't think that's the answer. The opposite of murder. Look at verse 23. Therefore, Jesus said, if you're presenting your altar, you're offering at the altar. And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. And then come and present your offering. The opposite of murder is reconciliation. Murder is premeditation, it's devaluation, it's denigration of the very name of God himself. But the opposite of murder is reconciliation. That's how you live in the opposite. That's how you keep, by the way, this command. The most practical thing you can do when you walk out the door today to keep the sixth commandment is reconcile. 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 Find that person who Jesus says you know has something against you. Not even necessarily someone that you have something against. But if you know that they're angry with you, that they have a problem with you, Jesus says go reconcile. Keep the sixth commandment. Reconciliation. 
And Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.19 that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. Reconcile. And you might say, but Rick, I've tried. You may have people in your life who will not reconcile, who choose not to, who when you go to them, hands are up and they do not want reconciliation. So what do you do with that? You keep going. You keep seeking reconciliation. It doesn't matter how they react or respond. That's not the point. You are called to be a minister of reconciliation. It doesn't matter if they have a seething anger, if they would like just as soon see you dead, if they see your life as not valuable. Reconcile. You keep going and going and going. Well, when do I stop trying to reconcile, Rick? When, Jesus, do we stop? When is enough is enough? Seven times? And Jesus would say, Oh, my friend, 70 times 7, you keep going. You keep reconciling. And he says, gang, that if we reconcile, we add value. Not only to our lives, but to the lives of those around us. Let's pray. Father, I've never much really thought about murder as something I could be guilty of. And yet I know, even if I cast a negative glance at my kids, I deliver harsh language toward my wife. If I look at a friend and say they just acted stupidly, or even, Lord, if I look at someone I don't know and call them a fool, I have entered in and violated that command. Father, we seek to please you as we prayed before, to to be lifted up, to be more like Jesus. So, Lord, this morning I I, I sense there are some here who need to deal with some anger issues. Who have some frustration, maybe toward family members or friends. Lord, there are others here who have attempted the act of reconciliation only to run into a brick wall. Father, still others who feel like their lives are not of value because maybe someone else has been killing them with their words over and over and over. Father, all these things, all these different avenues, all these hearts, I I don't know how to speak to, but you do. And so in the name of Jesus, I pray that you will draw us closer to Jesus. And if reconciliation is what we need, give us the strength. And if we just need to hear that we are of incredible value, Father, will you tie that to our hearts this morning? Will you speak that over and over in our ears this week? You are valuable. You are valuable. You are valuable. And may we truly come into a life that brings glory to you. May we be fully alive because of Jesus fully alive in us. And if you don't have Jesus fully alive in you this morning, if you want to become a Christian, to give your life to Him, then you can pray this simple prayer with me. Pray in your heart to the Father, Lord, I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. 
So I pray, Lord Jesus, that you will forgive me. I accept your action of forgiveness on the cross, your death, your burial, your resurrection. And I seek now to give myself to you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.